I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking is the word. It is the word every week, I feel like. It's like Pee Wee's Playhouse word. Debunking. Woo! Woo! Uh, but but truly, um, debunking is the name of the game. Last episode was part one. That was Fodor and the poltergeist, right? I, indeed, it was. And, and the, so the ferret or whatever. The ferret? No, it wasn't it, a ferret. It was it a mongoose. Was Jeff the mongoose. It was Jeff a mongoose. G-E-F. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mongoose? Jeff. How could I think you were a ferret? Mongoose I, ferret. Eh, I get it. Yeah. But if you haven't listened to uh, the last episode, I encourage you to go and listen to episode 48, which is our episode on Nandor Fodor, the OG Scully ghost hunter. And. And. But wait, there's more. The poltergeists. Poltergeists. So that just kind of gives a bit of a background on Fodor, what his deal was. And I'm not going to lie, during the rest of my research for this episode, which is the part due of Fodor and specifically Alma Fielding, I'm not as big of a fan of him. (laughs) I'm just going to say that now. Uh, And you will see why. Um, But let's get into it, shall we? Just to give you guys a heads up, this is a trigger warning for this episode. This episode does mention loss of children, um, stillborn type situations, loss of pregnancy, as well as sexual abuse. So if that's something that might not sit well with you, I completely understand. You might want to skip out this this time around, um, but just want to give you the heads up that we do discuss that in this episode. All right. So... Kate Summerscale is the author of the book that I'm basing most of my research on. I did do some research otherwise, uh, but there's actually not a lot of information on Alma Fielding elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that I researched literally took me back to this book or to like NPR articles about this author um, and a lot of different documents this author was able to find. So she did a really great job. She's like the one-stop shop on Alma Fielding, which is really nice. Um, the book that she wrote is The Haunting of Alma Fielding, uh, a true ghost story. We talked about it last episode. I talked about it in Creepy Critics Corner because truly that's the only thing I've been looking at for the last month. Um, but her documentation of Alma Fielding is pretty good. So just to give you some background on Kate Summerscale. In 2017, in January, she actually visited the Society for Psychical Research um, and looked at their archive in Cambridge to look up some of the references to Nandor Fodor. And he's the one who investigated the case of Alma Fielding and what was called the Croydon Poltergeist. Ooh, Croydon. Croydon. It's I just like a place. That. It's a place in the UK. That's all it is. I know, but I enjoy saying the word Croydon. Croydon. Kim's favorite names. Um, Croydon. Croydon. So, Summerscale didn't really expect to find anything directly relevant when she went to uh, the Society for Psychical Research Archive um, because 
Fodor actually had been working for a rival organization, which I talked about last episode, the International Institute for Psychical Research. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those papers were said to have actually been destroyed by German bombs and were not able to be found because during the time that Fodor was active was mainly right before um, World War II, right when it was starting. Mm -hmm. So when the documents were delivered to the university library's manuscript room, Kate Summerscale was uh, pleasantly surprised that it was actually Fodor's original records. Oh. Which is pretty cool. That is pretty Uh, cool. That's something I could see, like, I could see you and Kate Summerscale, like, really being besties and being like, let's find all the goods. And like someone delivers you the OG Fodor Na- or Nandor Fodor's Ooh, speaking my love language right transcripts, here. like all that information <laughs> and just gives it to you. Kim's just going to start crying with like happy tears. Right. I would. I would. So apparently the SBR must have acquired the International Institute's archive when mm-hmm. it disbanded in the 40s in the middle of the war. And that's mm-hmm. how they got a hold of it. Now, one of the files turned out to actually be Fodor's dossier on Alma. Mm. And it was mistakenly categorized as Mr. Fielding (laughs) instead of Mrs. Fielding, which I think is very funny. That is funny. Um, The the actual folder contained transcripts of Fodor's interviews and seances with Alma, lab reports, Mm. x-rays. He did literal x-rays of her. Copies of her contracts that she signed with the Institute, a bunch of like scribbled notes, like handwritten scribbled notes, uh-huh. sketches, uh-huh. photographs of the damage that was wrought by the poltergeist in Alma's house and uh, damage from her body that photos were taken of. Ooh. So like this is just a gold mine of poltergeist like gold that's really redundant, but you get my point. So let's go back to when Alma's peculiar situation started to catch people's attention, shall we? Let's go back. back, Let's go back. back. February 20th, 1938. The Sunday pictorial carried a report of a haunting in Croydon. Uh A 34-year-old housewife had called them to tell them about strange events at the home that she shared with her husband, Les, and her son, Don, and their lodger, George Saunders. Come to my house, Alma Fielding implored the pictorial's news desk, telling them, quote, there are things going on here I cannot explain. Hmm. What a dangle. So the Sunday pick, as it was known to its readers, sends out two reporters to Croydon. They're like, all right, we're going to check it out. Uh, You've baited me. I've caught it. I'm coming. It didn't take long for the paranormal activity that she had been witnessing to make quite an impact on the reporters, even though it didn't really seem to phase Alma. Sure. So she opens the front door and immediately an egg flies down the corridor and lands at their feet. (laughs) Ah, that's awesome. You would think that's not like a ghost, but maybe like a kid or something throwing an egg. But maybe who knows, right? But it didn't stop there. So she goes into the kitchen. They follow her into the kitchen. And a pink china dog rattled to the floor. And a sharp-bladed tin opener flew through the air at head height. (laughs) Which could be quite dangerous. Yeah. 
Alma doesn't flinch. In the front parlor, a teacup and saucer lifts out of Alma's hands as she's sitting with her guests. The saucer starts spinning and splinters with a loud ping as if it shot in midair. She screams because she's, I mean, that happens. That's, That's legit. And then the second saucer explodes in her fingers and cuts her thumb. Oof. This is just so much happening all at once. This is like the opposite of a regular ghost hunt. <laughs> like literally a regular ghost hunt is you go it's there and be true. like, did it make a noise? Is there something there? <laughs> Oops, sorry. That was my stomach. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm just hungry. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, this is just like insane amounts of weird things happening that everyone is seeing with their like eyes and nothing mm-hmm. can be causing it. It's very strange. So they're wrapping up Alma's thumb. And the reporters hear a crash in the kitchen. A wine glass apparently somehow escaped a locked cabinet and shattered on the floor. (laughs) And then more stuff happens. They see an egg whirl through the living room door and crack against the sideboard. A giant chunk of coal rises from the grate, sails across the room, misses one of the reporter's heads just by like an inch and smacks into the wall. Missed it by that much. Just, just by a smidge. Just a smidge. Alma still is not really responsive to anything, even though uh, her home seems to be under siege from itself. Everyone else is like, what the hell is going on? So Les, Don, and George were at home, but as far as the reporters could tell, none of them were responsible for the phenomena. Uh, The objects were propelled by an unseen force. So you could say that it was a really great story waiting to be told. And the mystery was overwhelming. So these reporters are like, we got to write an article about this. This is crazy. So they published their piece the next day under the slogan, quote, this is the most curious front page story we have ever printed, end quote. (laughs) In an ordinary terrace in Croydon, it declared, quote, some malevolent ghostly force is working miracles, Poltergeist, that's what the scientists call it. The spiritualists, they say it's caused by a mischievous earthbound spirit, end quote. Now, needless to say, uh, this article caused a swirl of gossip about the fielding, specifically about Alma, and it got a lot of people's attention. So Uh a ton of people show up to Alma's house to the point where they actually had to have the police come and protect their house to prevent people from breaking in and seeing what was going on because so many people showed up. Wow. So this also, of course, caught the attention of our friend Fodor. Uh, This was his perfect opportunity. If you recall the last episode, he was struggling. He heard about Alma, but he also was getting defaced by a lot of newspapers and articles speaking poorly about him and what he was doing. So he needed something to help him come out of that darkness and be able to prove that what he was doing was legit. Mm -hmm. And so Alma is his solution. He hears this story and he's like, I gotta do something with it. So it was his perfect opportunity to earn back his esteemed reputation as a parapsychologist and truly prove to the people that a, he should be taken seriously regardless of whether or not he was debunking a false medium or actually proving paranormal activity to be real sure so he goes and pays alma fielding and her husband less a visit so 
Let's talk a little bit about Alma before we get into this visit and give you a little bit of background on her. Let's talk about her childhood, how she grew up, how she got to be here. She was born on August 17th, 1903 to Charles and Alice Smith. Uh Charles was a plumber and a gas fitter. And uh, they also had a daughter named Doris, who was born in 1900, and a son named Charles Jr. in 1915. And what was interesting about Alma's childhood is that she suffered a lot, like in general. Lots of bad things happened to her, specifically childhood illnesses. Mm. So she had the measles, chicken pox, scarlatina. I don't even know what that is. Huh. Uh, whooping cough. Ooh. Tonsillitis. Oh, jeez. Like she got all of it. Um, <laughs> there's a reason we have vaccinations now, friends. Um, and at 16... She actually suffered a severe injury from a bike accident. Oh, no. It took her out for, like, months. It took Uh. her months to recover. And it caused her to suffer from from kidney abscesses multiple times later on in her life due to this specific injury. And at 16 is when she met Les. They actually got married when she was 17 and he was 21. And uh, she happened to be three months pregnant when they got married Uh. with their son, Don. We'll let people do the math on that. A whole shotgun moment, right? So she actually, some fun facts about her growing up and her adulthood about paranormal things. Mm -hmm. She began to experience psychic and paranormal abilities in 1930 when she saw the spirit of her father appear while she was kind of half awake, half asleep, lying on a couch. And he marked a cross over her left breast with his finger and she actually went to the doctor shortly after that and found out that she had a cancerous growth on her left breast and had to have Mm -hmm. it removed Mm -hmm. so she felt that her father paying her this visit was a warning to have her get checked out because he literally like marked it on her to be like hey there's something going on here and in 1929 just to go back a year she had a really weird medical crisis where she fully lost her sight, hmm. but somehow could function fully and do all of her like daily responsibilities and duties. She could walk around the house, know where she was going, do like do things, ride her bike with hmm. no vision somehow. Wow. And this was called quote sightless vision where you can still like function and feel around what, what's going on around you. But like for an unexplained reason you don't have actual vision. Now, Fodor later, of course, he analyzed her up and down. And so part of his analysis of her later on showed that Alma's bodily failings in general seemed to trigger a special capacity that as though she was actually trading physical power for psychic power. So Hmm. all of these weird happenings would happen after something physical would go wrong. Mm -hmm. But we'll get into that in a bit. Alma seemed to be suffering from hysterical blindness, a conversion disorder in which suppressed feelings bypassed conscious thought to express themselves directly through the body. So if your subconscious doesn't want to quote unquote, see something going on, your body will react by making you physically blind, which is kind of wild. But let's backpedal and go back to that initial visit with Fodor and the Fieldings and see how we even got here. So 
Last shows Fodor all the things that have been smashed by this supposed poltergeist over the last few days when Fodor arrives. Are you ready to hear all the things that got smashed? Let me have it. 36 tumblers. 24 wine glasses. 15 china egg cups. Wait, I'm sorry. May I ask why one needs 15 china egg cups? I'm wondering where they had all these stored. Did they just keep going out and buying more or did they just have them? Did you register for 15 China egg cups for your wedding, Gabby? Is this just a thing that this I'm not realizing? This is a different time in the world. Sure. <laughs> I don't have 15... room for 15 pe- dinner people in my place you, right now. Do you, but do you, like, do, if anyone out there, if any of our listeners can write in and tell us they have one China egg cup, I will send them something. I don't know send yet. Send us Maybe... a picture of it in our Instagram. Maybe I'll send you an egg to go in your china egg cup. But like, maybe can we make it a little ghost egg? That'd be we'll make cute. a little ghost egg. I'll make a little ghost egg for you uh, <laughs> to put in your china egg cup. If you can prove you have a china egg cup, because I'm sorry again, who in this planet has china egg cups? Fifteen. Well, anyway. they had more than that. They had five teacups, four saucers, a salad bowl, three light bulbs, nine eggs, two plates, <laughs> a pudding basin. Two vases, a water jug, a milk jug, and a jug of face cream. And sure. a partridge and a pear tree. I don't a know. lot of jugs. That's a lot of jugs. That's a lot of jugs. Ay, juggy. Lots of jugs. Ay. Ay. Um, some other objects that have been chucked at Alma were noted as a chair, rugs, and a fire screen. Did you chuck a rug at somebody? <laughs> That's what like- kind of force is required to chuck a rug? Like, Especially- rugs are heavy. Well, and they're big and awkward. You don't just pick a rug up and, I mean, maybe a rolled up rug. But then again, why would you have rolled up rugs around your house? This is also weird. have a lot of stuff. I don't know. But like, and if there's furniture on top of these rugs, are you pulling a magic trick of like, I pulled out the rug and then I tossed it at you? I have questions, questions. I know. I I knew you were going to have questions. I I can't answer these. I'm just giving you numbers right now. Um, But Fodor had questions too. So he interviews Alma. And he finds out that she and Les have both suffered bruises and cuts from flying objects in the house. Uh, yeah, those she, rugs are brutal. They are. That's very intense. You could, like, break a bone with that. Um, but she also mentioned that she's like, you know, I don't think the bruises were intentional. They just happened to get us. Like... Alma and sure. Les happened to be in the way while these things were flying, and that's why they were hurt from it. Which, sure. Okay, sure. She also mentioned that in the last year, she heard voices, whispers. Uh, these voices were telling her to hurry up and saying like things that she couldn't understand, and objects would fly out of her hands. Like she'd be holding a lipstick, and it would fly out of her hand. Uh, and no, she didn't throw it. <laughs> Lol. Um, and one time, she felt a cold hand on her shoulder. So, like, all these weird little things are happening. So, Fodor asks her if she thinks that she's psychic. And she says no. Uh, but also, she doesn't really know. And she's predicted events in the past. So, he's basically like, so what you're saying is yes. <laughs> uh, but she didn't say yes. She was saying no or I don't know. And Alma says that she didn't believe in ghosts. And was not a churchgoer or a spiritualist, but she thought, quote, there are things which we are not meant to know, end quote. Sure. One time when her mom was visiting, her mom expressed the sensation of being nearly strangled by an unseen force. So it's not even just affecting 
the people living in the house. It's affecting visitors at this point. Mm. She expressed that the only reason that she, Alma, reached out to the press originally was for help because she didn't know how to get help in this situation and she and her husband were pretty scared. But all it did was cause that stupid influx of people and nobody actually helped her. Right. And their son, Don, I think it's funny because it, to me, I, I imagine Don being like teen angst boy where he's trying to be like tough guy, but also sure. be like, I am terrified. Sure. So he allegedly didn't believe in ghosts and thought, thought that spiritualism was just bunk, air quotes, but was also scared enough that he wanted to move out. <laughs> so I, mean... I don't blame him. So Fodor then invites Alma to um, the Institute at Walton House. That's where the Institute located all their meetings. And thus began a series of experiments and seances that produced some real interesting results. Are you ready to hear I these results? I am ready. Fodor and his colleagues saw a diamante brooch materialize out of thin air. Then an ancient oil lamp also materialized out of thin air. Wait, what? Uh-huh. What? A white mouse, a scarab beetle, and what? a Javanese sparrow. So all Were these, these alive? things... Yes, I think the mouse was dead. Don't quote me on that. But I know the sparrow was alive, and I have a story sure to about quote that. You in a on that. I'm going to quote you and be like, "Gabby said, Gabby said." said. But Gabby said. all these things would would come about during seances when it would be dark in the room, right? So to assess, uh, you know, powers, there were a few things that Fodor was trying to have control over because you know just inviting anybody into a dark seance room and not like checking on them. Or seeing, like, do they have a bag? Do they have pockets? Like, are they sure. bringing stuff in? So that was where the x-rays came in handy. So he would have people x-rayed before they would do seances so they could see through their clothing and see if they had anything in their pockets. Generally speaking, that's how they would function with seances and any mediums that would come in. And so they would do that for Alma, but they would go even further, and she would undress, disrobe in front of women. I mentioned this in the last episode that they would do this for certain people. And it went kind of far, but I'll get to that in a moment. In addition to these seances where she would produce things, she seemed to be able to astrally project herself from huh. Croydon to Kensington and then back again. And at the same time, like, forget periods of time and then also open herself up to spirit possession at the same time. So, like, she would be in the seance room and then also be in a public place where people that were at the public place would identify her, recognize her, speak to the to Fodor and his people mm -hmm. and say, yes, she was here while she was also in the seance room with Fodor, which was kind of crazy. Hmm. So I don't know how to debunk that. That was something that wasn't ever able to be debunked, um, sure. which was interesting. And then... Another um, way that Fodor assessed her powers, he really liked using modern methods. So that's where the x-rays came in. So he started with the voice recorders. <laughs> Good old EVPs. Good old EVPs. Not spirit boxes. No. EVPs. But also these are recordings of actual people talking and not just like ghosts either. So there's that. Telephones, cameras, uh, there was chemical analysis. He also used hypnosis and word association tests to see where her 
brain was and like what she was thinking and any kind of underlying topics that might come up with word association. I would like a machine to assess where my brain is. <laughs> that would be a fun day. Uh, that would be we'll, an we'll save that day. for another time. Okay. <laughs> so some of the colleagues that Fodor invited were actually suspicious of Alma, saying that she was a lunatic, but Fodor constantly defended her. He always had her back and stood up to anyone that spoke ill of her. So I at least appreciate Fodor for that, that like he knew that something was up with her. He was trying to see this seems like a legit paranormal situation. I want to prove that it's a paranormal situation. Sure. Versus I think she's a, a, a hoax and that we're going to prove it wrong. So he had all of the best intentions, I think, up top. He gathered witness statements and transcribed Alma's dreams even. He also sent investigators to track her movements when he couldn't be around, which is a little kind of, I don't know yeah, how I feel about that. That's all sketchy. A little sketch. He also laid traps for her to walk into. Not like literal, but like figurative traps. <laughs> I was um, like, like, like mouse traps? Like that's kind like of a, a dick like a move. Like a bare, barefoot yeah. trap. Yes. <laughs> Just turn into a walk saw right movie. Into. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, no, not like that. But like there were instances where uh, he just questioned if the things that she was providing were authentic or not. Right. So if Alma's phenomena were tricks, he wanted to know how she was pulling them off. If not, he needed to understand uh, the psychic mechanisms behind uh, how they were coming about. Uh And this is a quote from Fodor. There is a door which leads from the mind we know to the mind we do not know. He told the Daily Mirror in March 1938. Now and again, that door is opened. Strange things happen. There are manifestations, queer phenomena, transfigurations, end quote. So as the door to the unconscious swings open, Fodor reasoned, a suppressed feeling might escape its human host in material form. So he's starting to go into a deeper analysis of this than anyone else has gone into at this point. He actually speculated that the mediums discharged electromagnetic rays from their fingers and toes or extruded invisible, semi-metallic, psychic rods or ectoplasmic threads like cobwebs. I, what? I hear psychic rods and ectoplasm and my mind goes to a very different place. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. We're here to entertain. I am who I am. Gabby, I am who I am. <laughs> but this is a wild thing. Like to, uh, This to me is kind of crossing a line of like science and going more into the paranormal realm where I'm like, but where do we have proof of this? How You're someone who's so based in proof that where, how, how do we have this proof, right? Yeah. So Fodor notices that Alma often seemed detached from herself when a weird event took place. And he wondered if... At such moments, her buried life came to the surface and broke out. And it Mm -hmm. would potentially break out in ways where things would manifest. Sure. So he was intrigued by the phenomena of mental dissociation, which had been observed both in mediums and in victims of shell shock. Uh, So it's interesting that we're talking about a time where people are going into war and people have also come out of World War Mm -hmm. One. And like we mentioned in the last episode, spiritualism was a huge thing coming out of World War One because so many people died and there was a lot of closure that people were looking for and trying to communicate with people who had passed. And so you see a lot of victims of shell shock in addition to the people that don't have people to come back to or vice versa. 
So Fodor wondered whether Alma's psyche had fractured under pressure of forbidden emotion. That could be it. There's a lot of speculation here. So perhaps she underwent spells of amnesia in Mm. which she unconsciously carried out supernatural tricks. Or maybe her estranged alter ego was escaping her body altogether. Sure. Snapping and cracking itself into being as an external physical force with the little knocks on the tables and the Mm. noises that were made with poltergeists. Yeah. So in March... Fodor arranges a day trip. This is a great story. I think you're really going to like this one. Fodor arranges a day trip to Bognor Regis with Mm -hmm. Alma and four members of the Institute. Alma seemed kind of skittish, but agreed to go uh, and see if her poltergeist could spirit a ring from the local branch of Woolworths because suddenly items kept appearing in her hands when she wasn't asking for them. Hmm. So... They go to the jewelry counter in the Bognor Woolies, and Fodor and his party watch Alma pick out a ring with two stones on a curved bridge, look at it, and then put it back and give it to the assistant. It was the nicest ring there. Alma even was like, I kind of want to buy it, but I'm not going to buy it today. So the shop girl eyed them suspiciously. (laughs) She thinks they're shady. Fair enough. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Fodor even wrote down, it looked fishy to her. (laughs) She followed us. We began to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and as the group turned into a road near the shop after they left, Alma said she heard a rattle in the box that she was carrying. Fodor then takes the box from her. He opens it. And guess what's inside? Ectoplasm. Not the ring. <laughs> God damn it, Kim. The <laughs> ring is inside. <laughs> Fodor said, my flesh creeped. Everyone was staggered. They all swore that they had seen the ring still on the jewelry counter when they left. Hmm. The experience was rather alarming, Fodor said. We had committed psychic shoplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Or she just is really good at magic tricks. I don't know. I feel like... (laughs) I mean, like the sleight of hand stuff? Like, I don't know. I'm... I mean, but it was behind the counter in a cabinet. And Mm. how, how could she have gone back and done that if she was with all these people around her the whole time. Yeah. So that's something to think about. Sure, sure. So Fodor obviously sees something in Alma that is intriguing, and uh-huh. he really wanted to understand her and to help her at least figure out, figure out, like I said, how she was doing these things. Like, how? Why? I don't get it. How? I, I don't blame him. I would have been in the same exact boat. Yeah. And part of him actually guessed that she might just like the attention at the Institute and want to continue to be involved in the research that they were doing with her. And maybe provide some extra material for them to study at her leisure. So he didn't really fully trust it. This literally makes me think of like what we talk about all the time with ghost shows of like, what's it like in a real ghost hunt versus what's it like on an actual ghost show? And like the fact that they create evidence, 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 evidence. evidence. So, like, it's not to say that she wasn't psychic or could do things, but maybe she was also adding more zhuzh to the situation to make it seem bigger than it was. Sure. Or maybe she just wanted to see how far she could go without getting caught, but also still have some true mediumship attached to it. Like, there's a couple different routes it could go. Definitely. So where others might see Alma as a typical person of her class and gender, to Fodor, she was ingenious. She was complex. She was fun. 
he guessed that she sometimes faked the phenomena in order to retain their interests, like he said, but he forgave such when lapses. We saw that with the Enfield poltergeist, where yeah. they admitted to faking some of it um, just because they were like, well... They just people sometimes wouldn't leave leave us alone till we had made something happen or they were kids like it's it's understandable. Right. But then that's different, though. Kids versus an adult doing it. Yeah. But I mean, again, it's it's that same thing, though. Like you're getting all this attention. You have people possibly sometimes demanding things to just happen. Like I could see that becoming a thing that that you've got all these people around you being like, you need to you need to prove it again, prove it again. So you're just like, all right, fine, I'll fucking prove it again. Leave me alone. <laughs> that's true, but she actually liked the attention too. So well, there's the combination that, of that. And that's just it. Like, especially if you've got somebody who's kind of feeding off of it, then that's all the more reason why they may make it a point to do more things. But that's also speculation because at that point, he doesn't even have proof of anything yet. Sure. So this is him just being a true skeptic, a true scully. Uh, as, as he is. But he had no doubt that the terror that she originally showed about the poltergeist was genuine. He knew that she was actually terrified. Sure. And so he wanted to be sensitive to that and understood why an imaginative working class woman might resort to supernatural hoaxing. It was truly an escape, whether it was conscious or not. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about women in this time. Her days were repetitive. She had domestic chores she was relieved only by, you know, going out to shops or cups of tea with friends. So being able to go into a place and do investigations and seances was fun for her. British women had enjoyed uh, an entire spell of freedom during and immediately after the war um, when many of them went out to work, but the popular press now encouraged to keep them at home. They wanted them to stay home. Mm -hmm. So these women were urged to tend to their appearance to their family's health. The ideal woman was contained, composed, and restrained. Fuck a whole bunch of that. I'm just going to say that now. Um, but again, How do you really feel, Gabby? I have had a week. <laughs> I know I keep saying that every time we record, but it's true. But so for a woman with psychic powers, different rules applied. You didn't have to stick to that little tiny box and live inside of it. That's a medium true. could undertake extravagant feats of mobility. Right. We talked about astral projection, Uh transfiguration, time travel, levitation, what have you. And in doing so, escape the constraints of her gender and her class Uh and become more powerful than a regular everyday woman. So I don't blame any woman at this time for wanting to be a medium or tapping into that a little bit more. Now, fun fact, during a uh, seance, she even had a spirit guide come through. She's had a couple. One of them was uh, named Jimmy, which, funny enough, was her grandfather's name. Okay. And this grandfather uh, happened to love to play pranks and play Mm. jokes on people in his Mm. life. Hmm. Doesn't that sound like a regular old poltergeist to you? Hmm. All right. She had a couple other spirit guides. One was uh, like a a tiny child came through one time saying, like, Mommy... And then another one came through that said it was a like Native American girl. But there were a few instances where Fodor actually felt that he caught Alma in the act of deceit. And he pointed it out in his notes 
And in the book, it shows this. But he didn't tell Alma right away that he saw what he saw. Hmm. He only noted it to himself. So as we mentioned previously, when Alma would be stripped nude in front of women prior to seances and then redress and join the seance, there was a case where she did that and then joined the group and a small bird appeared in the seance. You were asking about, was it alive or not? As this bird appeared, there was a cloth that had dropped to the floor mm-hmm. and it came from underneath Alma's skirt. Mm. Within that cloth was a tiny feather. So Fodor hypothesized that she had tied this cloth around her thigh yeah. and tucked a bird into the cloth and then released it to release the bird. Yeah. But he didn't call her out on it right away. Sure. Now, in another, I believe that this also may have shown up in one of the x-rays when she got x-rayed. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, I think it just, like, camouflaged because all you could see were bones on bones. Mm. And so you couldn't really see. It wasn't like a piece of metal, right? Sure, yeah. Um, in another instance, they found in the seance room afterward a small, moist, and somewhat soiled rag. Oof. TMI. I uh, wonder where that was. Um, technically it should have held small items that appeared in the seance and Fodor hypothesized that Alma had concealed it within her body sure, and birthed it during the seance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, there was an issue associated with that, that at, when Fodor was explaining it, he made it seem like she was just trying to make it more exciting for everybody, but unintentionally triggered something within herself and then had an even bigger emotional response unintentionally. So the issue here is that Alma is trying to provide more oohs and ahs for a seance. Sure. But unintentionally triggering trauma. Sure. And so one of the traumas that she triggered in doing this was that of childbirth. Because Alma lost uh, twins during childbirth. They both were stillborn. Mm. And another child at a young age. And Fodor believed that the loss of a child may have awakened intolerable feelings from her own childhood. Mm-hmm. Quote, traumatic aloneness is what renders the attack traumatic, causing the psyche to crack. The absence of a kind understanding environment results in lasting trauma. So... What kind of environment was she in where she had to have this traumatic response from something like that is something to question, too. Right. The trauma associated with the loss of her children seemed to resurface during these seances, potentially then triggering a trauma response of disassociation and the appearance of a secondary personality, a spirit guide, speaking her inner subconscious thoughts. So at one point, her experiences graduated to even greater heights. She even began to talk about a visitation that she had at night, leaving her with two punctured wounds in her neck after awakening from nightmares of seeing coffins lining the walls of a long hallway. Okay. What does this sound like to you? I mean, what does it sound like or what does it sound like? (laughs) It was a sound like. Uh, I, I am skeptical is what I will say, but yes, obviously we're going for some kind of vampire type situation, but I'm, I'm, yeah, (laughs) I'm, I'm having scully feelings. My scully sense is tingling. Scully sense should be tingling. Mm -hmm. So, uh, now 
in addition to this, she had a moment where she felt as though she had sleep paralysis and was being, uh, I don't know how else to say it, having sex with a ghost, like our friend from our uh, Valentine's episode many moons ago, Um, and then felt like the next day that her stomach was sticking out and she thought she was pregnant with like an incubus child. Which again, that goes back to the whole trauma of pregnancy. This sounds like a woman who had some deeply traumatic things happen to her and was working through all of these feelings and the impact on her psyche by putting it on a, a poltergeist, poltergeist putting, putting it on something supernatural influencing yeah. her. Uh, and I mean, again, I, I don't want to say that it doesn't mean there wasn't something supernatural going on, but I, I feel like I've read too many of these stories. I've seen too many of these accounts. There's a big connection to the kinds of things she's experiencing and some pretty deep trauma and pretty deep, uh, you know, imprints left back on you that again, not even intentional, but just, yeah. Happens. No, it it, it happens. And I think this was like the perfectly timed time. That was a weird way of saying that, but the perfect time for her to latch onto something like this to, identify and be able to express what she was going through because so many uh, seances were happening. You know, spiritualism was huge during this time. And specifically during a seance with Fodor's medium friends, um, there, there was a woman named Eileen Garrett. I talked about her in the last episode. She's the one who has a spirit guy named Uvani, but she also doesn't believe in ghosts. She's a full skeptic, but I think it's great that she has a spirit guide. Um, so she's in this seance with Fodor and with Alma. And Fodor explains that Alma had an operation a year before this. It was a pretty serious operation. And during this operation, quote, her soul was cast out and an alien spirit, an Indian girl, had taken possession of Alma ever since. Her soul was trying to come back. And two nights prior, she had a visitation, a vampire sucking her blood. Until her own soul returns to her body, she cannot be well, end quote. So Uvani then explains that they were dealing with an obsession that had become a reality, which is exactly what you're saying, which basically is a fictionalized potentially situation that is then put into a non-fictional environment and felt as real because it is happening to her. And what's really interesting, too, is that... um, at the same time, again, timing. One of the things I noticed about this period of time is so many of like the, the greats of, of our generation and time were functioning in this period yeah. of time. Yeah. And Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1897. Uh-huh. During this time, the movies with Bela Lugosi were being made. And fun fact, Fodor was buds with Bela Lugosi, which is kind of cool. Nice. Um, on top of that, Alma could have potentially seen or heard or read Dracula and projected what she was reading and viewing into her subconscious and making that a thing by what she viewed and read. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, another um, psychoanalyst, his name was Ernest Jones. 
was a close friend of Freud. Freud was also a guy who was hanging out at this time. Um, he stated that vampires, incubi, and succubi of nightmares were projections of incestuous wishes. Dreams of vampires in particular indicated a longing to consume or copulate with the dead, and the dreamer was disavowing his or her desires. So Alma's night terrors therefore allegedly indicated suppressed feelings for someone in her past. Mm-hmm. Fodor at this point was convinced that a repressed memory was responsible for the storm of violence that she was experiencing. The supernatural events embodied the splintering and contradiction of a traumatic experience, like you said. A ghost conjured the uneasy sense that something both was and was not real, that an event recurred as if it were outside of time and would never go away. And the way that she lived through and processed everything was through all of this. So in a debriefing post-seance with Eileen, Eileen expressed to Alma that she was a talented medium and needed to develop her gifts. She also addressed that the mental absences that Alma had been experiencing, where she would pass out and wake up in a different place, um, she was talking about that. She was like, was it astral projection? Was it ambulatory amnesia? Was she choosing to forget where she was? How did that happen? Eileen also said that Alma's mental absences, were, a, were they were typical of mediums, that she mm-hmm. too experienced amnesic episodes lasting hours, and it was a form of escape. Mm-hmm. Alma also had moments where her husband, Les, thought that she was speaking as another person, like a different voice was coming out of her. Mm-hmm. So could this have been a multiple personality disorder? Maybe. Or could she have been in an amnesic trance channeling a spirit or a gradual dissociation of personality? We don't know. So after Alma's operation a year prior that I mentioned previously, she had a really bad, angry breakdown and said that she, quote, wanted to throw everything about in the bedroom, and that was the beginning of it. And this is the first time that she acknowledged herself with the recent poltergeist violence. So the being a medium was obviously a form of escape. It gave a woman a chance for that freedom. Um, and in a later seance, Fodor, Eileen, Alma, and Les, Eileen's spirits guide, Uvani, came about, warned Alma that she might be, she might think that she was using mischief to impersonate the supernatural, but actually open herself to a genuine possession. Hmm. Afterward, Fodor called Alma out on her mischief, quote unquote, telling her that if she wanted to be taken seriously, she needs to knock it off because she could potentially bite herself in the ass. His actual words were, quote, she might think that she was writing the devil, but it was possible that the devil was writing her. Uh. So she was then making herself so emotionally vulnerable to anything. If it was not paranormal yet, she could make it accidentally a paranormal thing. So Fodor took things too far with Alma, um, suggesting that she be administered with scopalamine, which is a truth serum, for her to admit to her potential childhood sexual trauma that could have caused her to have all of these feelings come out, or to confess that she was a fraud. And obviously Alma refuses to take the drug rightfully. But in trying to help heal Alma and rid her of her poltergeist, Fodor may have resurfaced some of her traumas within her and actually made matters worse for her, unfortunately. So at one point, some of Fodor's medium friends had enough. They get into it with him, and they tell him, you need to stop this investigation. She needs a break. She needs to not, like, things are getting worse. It's not a good situation. Mm -hmm. And then the news spreads like wildfire. So now the... uh, 
you know, Institute starts hearing about stuff and all the documents that Fodor has been writing about Alma are there and people are reviewing it. Fodor's excessive involvement with Alma and by pressing her to a near point of mental breakdown cost him not only the discontinuation or the continuation of Alma's case, but it also ended up costing him his position at the International Institute for Psychical Research. So they let him go, they fired him. Rightfully so, after fully gaslighting Alma to make sure, make her feel like he wasn't questioning her authenticity. Like at one point, she calls him out on it and says, you think I'm fake. You think that this is a thing. I overheard your thoughts. So she is literally in his head and hearing the exact conversation that he had with someone else. And he denies it and says, it's just because she's stressed out. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I hate Fodor. He's gaslighting her. That sucks. So not only is he gaslighting her, he's forcing her to relive her trauma, not just of any trauma, but specifically with the birth, with accusing her of being sexually assaulted as a child, which could be a repressed memory that she doesn't even remember at this yeah. point. Um, and Fodor should have received some kind of penalty, even if it was masked initially as not having enough money to pay him, which is what the Institute originally said. Mm -hmm. So after single-handedly running the Institute for four years, he's out. And with it, the Institute confiscated all of his transcripts, all those documents having to do with Alma's case. Now, as intense as that was, they later apologized publicly in an article and then gave him back everything, which I feel like was dumb and they shouldn't have done that. But that's just me. Eileen Garrett distanced herself from, from Fodor. She's like, no, I can't be involved with this. She claimed that his stance and documentation of her claims were inaccurate as she never claimed to be a medium, and she even asked Fodor never to quote her or her spirit guide, Uvani, in relation to Alma's case. Mm. This is pretty serious. Fodor then tries one last time to reach out to Alma to offer her a course of psychoanalysis into her poltergeist, but uh, yeah, she doesn't respond for rightfully, because why should she after he just did all this to her? Um, there was so much uncertainty in the air at this time, too. Just if you think about timing, um, it was right around the time that Hitler began to invade parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. And the speculation, truth, and brainwash of the entire situation was rampant. People were feeling pretty powerless. And the more powerless people felt, the more significance they would give to just regular everyday events or attribute magical meaning of a moment to an inanimate object, a reaction of an animal, weather patterns, what have you. So it's no surprise that uncertainty left people unable to deal with ambiguity. So the Institute severs its ties with Fodor because they couldn't accept that Alma might both be a liar and a victim, as well as Fodor being skeptical and sincere, even if his approach was less than kosher. Mm -hmm. um, Fodor's theory made haunting consistent with psychoanalysis. Not a counter argument that suggested a person would make contact with the supernatural, but proof of the power of repression. So this was proven when Fodor literally went to Freud, had a conversation with Freud, told him about the situation. And while Freud thought paranormal stuff was all kinds of mumbo jumbo, he appreciated Fodor's perspective on Alma and supported it with his own theories. So Fodor now decides he's gonna write a book about Alma and her poltergeist sends Alma and Les a copy of his report on Alma, explaining that he wishes to publish it, and they flip, rightfully, again, because why? What's that, that's going to like mess up their family. That's bad news bears. 
So fast forward to Fodor's trial with the psychic news. If you remember last episode, we talked about how he was pursuing and pursuing, actually suing um, the psychic news for defacing his career and him. And Alma shows up. She's present at this um, trial. And the last thing that she says to Fodor was, you will never publish that book. So with that, Fodor and his family leave London. They sail to New York two days after Hitler announced that the coming war uh, was coming to Europe, eliminating all the Jews. And Fodor is Jewish. This was on March 17, 1939. So it's pretty wild. Um, there were a lot of different things that happened here. There was a lot of speculation that there was conscious deceit with Alma, you know, Fodor insisting that she was sick, that she wasn't in control of her actions. Mm -hmm. He thought he was protecting her, but he was also being pretty harmful toward her, whether he realized it or not. Sure. His statements relieved her of blame, mm -hmm. instead blaming the violence on her potentially abused past. Mm -hmm. But the damage in her exposure was done. People knew about her at this point. Fodor not only publicly exposed her situation, but he also never credited her and her creative achievement of being able to pull off some wild and inexplicable happenings. Yeah. Um, her haunting, in part, had been a deliberate hoax. She did pull off some things on her own. She also, you know, she just did a lot of things where you had to question, was it real? Was it conscious? Was it a ghost? What was it? And allegedly, her poltergeist never left her. Mm -hmm. She even uh, held seances in her home years after all of this uh, when she moved to Devon and lived on a cliff. So dramatic. Um, Fodor eventually publishes his book in 1958. I, this is like a fun fact that I think is a really good segue into Creepy Critics Corner because um, it talks about one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. So in 1958, psychical research wasn't really taken as seriously by most scientific thinkers. The people that started to take interest in this stuff were novelists. So his book is published in 1958 and in 1959 The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson mm. comes out. Mm -hmm. It explores the possibility that a disturbed individual can trigger supernormal events. Sound mm -hmm. familiar? Mm -hmm. So she describes a ghost hunt conducted under um, the, the name of the psychical researcher Dr. John Montague, in which weird incidents seem to emanate from a young woman named Eleanor Vance. If you don't know the storyline, that's it. When Fodor was invited to serve as a consultant on the film adaptation of the novel in 1963, he asked Shirley Jackson if she had read his work, and she confirmed that she had. Hmm. So cool. So the story was about real supernatural happenings, she said. Like Fodor, she chose not to explain away psychic experiences as madness or lies or someone's mental health situation. Fodor mm -hmm. wrote an article about the haunting of Hill House right before his death in 1964. And he stated that Jackson had adopted, quote, the modern approach to the supernatural, saying, quote, the creaks and groans of furniture, the imbalance of a spiral staircase, and the abnormally cold spots are objectifications of the mental anguish and chill of Eleanor's soul. The violent slamming of doors are explosive manifestations of inner conflicts, end quote. And there's lots of other films that have come since then uh, that really, truly reflect similar 
situations. For example, Carrie, uh, The Shining, um, The Vet's Daughter, Don't Look Now, Beloved, um, The Little Stranger, The Babadook. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many different movies that have come out, books that have come out, just pop culture that has been influenced by things like this. And this was one of the first publications that spoke to, Fodor was the first person to speak to all of the poltergeists having to do with underlying psychosis or psychoanalysis having to do with trauma. And that is Alma Fielding and Fodor. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta ask you, Kim. <laughs> it's a lot. I knew I told you it was going to be a doozy. Uh-huh. But what do you think? What do you think it was? I know you kind of started to to explain, but you wanted to hear more. But I want to. I'm curious what your stance is. Uh, I again, I I think this sounds like a woman who had some deeply traumatic things happen to her, yeah. and um, I don't want to discount the possibility that there wasn't something possibly supernatural happening around all this. Sure. But um, I, I think personally, this sounds like the case where at least a lot of the really bonkers things the 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 animals appearing the you know i don't see credible evidence 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 um that that for me has convinced me that that any of that stuff was legit um again it, it sounds like she was she was a, a woman who had a lot of just um not great things happen to her that that contributed to uh a lot of a lot of trauma. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Honestly, it's it's really interesting because I remember when I first saw this book, I got so excited to read it because it was like a true ghost story. I was like, I remember yes. you like you like texted me and it was late with just this cover, and I was like, what's happening? Yeah, it, <laughs> it, I was really excited, and I feel like I got scullied. <laughs> like at the end of the day, the scully scullied me. The in reading this was book, strong. Um, yeah. Scully was strong with this one, but also it's just it makes me a little bit sad to see how she was treated um, yeah. by people yeah. um, because, and I know that this was uh, again 1939. This was sure. a different time. People weren't handling things the way they are now. It's it's just a different. It's really hard to compare apples to oranges in that sure. sense. Um, but it's hard to look at a through it's hard to look at the past with a contemporary lens and Correct. and judge it because uh, yeah and it's also difficult because you can truly see the pain and the suffering within yeah. it yeah and i think that's really sad to be able to obviously like uh, fodor was really looking at her like an object to a degree yeah. and, and yeah. dissecting her like an object instead of like a person and i'm really glad there were other mediums that were involved that put their foot down and supported her and told him no more done yeah boundary no. line um because while his intentions initially were good he seemed to go down the rabbit hole on this one and yeah. at what cost um yeah. unfortunately and while nandor fodor uh was a giant of his time um it just does make me sad that this was treated in the way that it was yeah but having said that, not to be Debbie Downer, <laughs> let's uh, go head on over to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! 
Yeah. What you watching? Far too many horror films. Uh, as of this recording, I I am currently on. Uh, we are countdown to Halloween day eighty seven, uh, and and watching too many movies. But I, you know, there's been a couple winners. There's been a few unexpected oh. winners. Uh, yeah. I watched one just the other day that was called The Boy Behind the Door. It is that already a- sounds creepy as shit. It's it's available for streaming on Shutter. It's a a new release on Shutter. Um, I thought it was really fantastic, and the 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 premise of it essentially is that these two twelve year old boys get abducted. Oh shoot! <laughs> and and um, one of them gets taken in the house, and the other one gets left in the trunk. But the one in the trunk manages to get out. But rather than leaving his friend, he becomes determined to help his friend. Oh, that's nice. It is. And it, I have to say that, that part of what made this movie successful to me is the, the two lead actors who are again, children, you know, they're playing, they're 12 year old boys. I can't imagine that the, the kids in this, um, like they're, they're, 12 year old boys, you know, they're, 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 they are true to age. You're not trying to pass off like a 17 year old as a, as a 12 year old. These are kids and they are both just exceptional actors. They That's give awesome. a really fantastic performances and really kind of devastating at times. Like it, it's, it's almost an uncomfortable watch at points. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it was just, I found it gripping. I found it, um, really well done and and I was on board um for it so yeah that's that's streaming on shutter so I I would recommend that the the other one I watched that was kind of a surprise to me uh was a movie called Howard's Mill and Howard's Mill is what we call a mockumentary explain uh so a mockumentary film is um sort of sandwiched in with with a found footage but rather than than being something kind of um like paranormal activity where you're you're just viewing the footage from the film a mockumentary is actually presented as though it were a documentary but it is not on a real subject or it might be inspired by some real events but it's a fictional take on something that's real a fantastic one is uh one of a favorite film of mine called lake mungo that was a supernatural film that came out a number of years ago. Um, nice. And so Howard's Mill is a mockumentary that um, about this this abandoned farm with this big pond on the property, and the filmmakers initially, you know, again the filmmakers, quote unquote, uh, are are initially covering the disappearance of a woman named Emily Nixon. Uh huh. Who had been like I think it was her and her husband were were treasure hunting near or on this abandoned property and she just disappears, oh, and they kind of go in to tell the husband's side of the story and to possibly exonerate him. Although in the beginning they're kind of like mm, I don't know maybe he did it, but as they're investigating, they start finding out this pattern of disappearances that had happened on this farm and a bunch of just really strange things that had happened on this farm going back decades. Oh, dang. 
And so they're they're kind of trying to figure out what exactly was happening and what happened to his wife and what happened to these other people who had disappeared um, in this area. And it's I'm a sucker for a mockumentary again. I I love things that are presented as reality because to me that is um, scarier. It's it's scarier. Yeah. Like I, I'm not scared by a a Jason Voorhees. I'm not scared by a supernatural film, a a traditional supernatural film. Cause again, eh, it's fake, but something that's like toying that line of reality. It's why I enjoy found footage and I know they're not for everyone, but a mockumentary man, that's like all of my buzzwords. You got the found footage, you got the, the, you know, a lot of times a true crime or a supernatural element to it. Um, You've got a documentary. I love a good documentary. So, uh, yeah, Howard's Mill was a surprise because it's it's a pretty low-budget film. Uh, I watched it on Tubi, you know, um, but uh, that was a, that was an unexpected delight to watch that I, I was not – honestly, when I saw it, especially because the movie poster looks like something where I was like – Oh, this is going to be awful. No, it's real bad. Which it, it, again, it looks it looks kind of low rent. But uh, no, I I very much enjoyed that. So those have been two films over the the last week or so I've I've watched during my hundred days that were um, quite quite good. How about you? What have you been watching? I've been watching trash TV. Of course, <laughs> it's your favorite. I I think my coping mechanism. <laughs> Or stress is watching other people's lives that are worse than mine. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I actually, um, I did watch, uh, I, well, I watched a show called Sexy Beasts, which is on <laughs> Netflix. And it's really funny. It's like a, a blind date dating show where they mm-hmm. put people in like insane mask makeup. So you can't see what the other person looks like. And you have to go on a date with them and, like, actually get to know them and have no idea what they look like. And I actually kind of like the concept of it initially because they, like, cover people's, like, necks, hands, everything. Like, so you can't tell, like, race. You can't tell, like, anything. And I I think that's a genius idea. I love it. I thought, like, the concept of it was, like, fun, stupid, but entertaining, like sure. all of yeah. those things together, but also like kind of heartwarming at the same time, because you get a bunch of dummies that are just shallow and you put sure. them in a situation like this. And it's proving that like, you cannot rely on your looks. You need to have a brain. So like, what does your brain look like? And that's basically what this show is about. And so it's, it's very, it's mindless TV. It's entertaining. Um, sure. but I actually thought it was there. There were some like heartwarming moments, um, which was really nice. And then there's actually a show that I watched, um, Trial by Media. Uh, Hmm. It's on Netflix right now. So it is actually like a docu-series about true crime um, having Mm -hmm. to do with how media influenced whatever Mm -hmm. crime it was. Mm -hmm. And I watched the first episode of it. I kind of watched the second. I honestly wasn't paying attention in the second one, so I'd probably have to go back and rewatch it. But um, the first episode is called Talk Show Murder, and mm-hmm. it's about a guy who, um, a, a gay man who reveals to his straight friend on the Jenny Jones show in the 90s. Oh, I remember this. Who the yeah. straight guy came back and killed him. And killed um, him. And Shit, this was big news. It was huge news. And I it's, remember this. So it was, it's an episode that's about that case and mm-hmm. how it went down. And it's funny because I was watching it with Terrence and we were, there was one part where they were talking about how um, 
talk show TV was such a huge thing in the 90s and yeah. how um, I feel like reality TV now is kind of like the same thing. And they talked about schadenfreude. Is that how you pronounce it? <coughs> schadenfreude, yeah. They talked about schadenfreude and how basically when you watch a talk show and see someone else's life that's like really crazy, like it makes you feel good to not be in that situation. I was like, oh, that's that's why I watch reality better, TV. Better you than me, yeah. Fully, yeah. That's, that's but, I identify with that. Because I, I feel like though with that, because I used to be, man, when I was a kid, I would watch all the trash ones. I would watch um, Maury Povich. I would watch Jerry Springer. I would watch, uh, I don't know, was it Jenny Jones and Ricky Lake and, and oh, I was it like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, I th- felt like was mildly classier, but they, that may have just been the glasses. But like, I remember the ones that were really the worst where they did all the paternity tests and they did the like your ex-boyfriend's sister's brother who you cheated with or whatever. And I know a lot of that was fake, but also a lot of them as demonstrated by this wasn't. And they would ambush people. Yeah. And with no thought as to the repercussions, and at least when people do reality TV, like, they're signing up for a shit show. That's true. You know, it's a little when, different. It's a little different. And not to say that if I'm being asked to come on a, a, a talk show that it, it could be not legit. But the thing was is that I remember in a bunch of those cases, they would bring people on under false pretenses. They'd bring them on and yeah. be like, we told them we were bringing them on to reunite them with an old teacher. We told them we were bringing them on to have them be involved in a dating show or something. They, And that, to me, is awful and irresponsible. And that oh, is what sure. led to, oh, I'll have well, to watch that. It's got actual footage of the trial, too, which is really interesting, oh, where they oh. actually have Jenny Jones on like in mm. the trial being questioned and like, don't you think it's your responsibility that you made this happen? It's like such a tough situation. They talk from the perspectives of the lawyers and the arguments. It's really interesting. Um, so I, I thought it was great. Uh, yeah. And then uh, every single episode is a different case. So it, it's a really interesting show. I think you would really like it a lot whenever you have time to watch anything ever that's not a horror movie in your 100 Days of Horror. Um, it's but, just crazy because I, I, I remember when this happened. Like, I was yeah. I was young, but I still remember it being on the news, and I remember the trial being something that was all over the news. That I mean, you probably run into this with some of the things that happened when we were younger where you were – like. I was little when mm-hmm. the whole thing happened with with Bill Clinton, but I still remember people talking about Monica Lewinsky and a blue yep. dress, and mm-hmm. and even if I didn't really understand what was happening, you hear it and you, it's. Tr- I remember. Speaking of which, there's also going to be a new show on FX called Impeachment: oh, yeah. A True Crime yeah. Story about that's that. been in my. I think that's why it's in my brain. Is I, I can't I, wait I keep to seeing see it. Looks really good. Uh, but like the the Bronco chase, I very vividly yes, remember, I remember that. that. I was just gonna say I remember OJ Simpson's trial like yeah, very vividly. And yeah. it's because it used to interrupt my soap operas. It, it my <laughs> not for the same reason for me, but it doesn't. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It was I my days of our lives, my general hospital, all my children. Now I, I know used to watch, why Kim is the way Kim is. <laughs> I lived for that stuff. When I was a teenager, especially, I got so into I For a while, it was just Days of Our Lives when I was little. My mom used to watch Days of Our Lives. But then at some point, I branched <laughs> out. And I think I was, there was a time I was watching the whole ABC lineup. I would go, Port Charles. I remember Port Charles. There was one life to live and all my children in General Hospital. 
And, and this uh, is Kim's creepy critics corner childhood nostalgia. What's funny is every so often, every so often, I check in with those my my soap operas just to see. And I gotta say, there's some storylines where I'm like, oh my god, I haven't watched this show in probably 15 years, and we're still talking about this shit. Like nothing changes. <laughs> no, that's that's no. that's how it is. That's how it is. Anyway, we went Anywho. off on a tangent. It's fine. <laughs> it's happened. It's fine. It happens. But uh, thank you uh, to our listeners for listening. Uh, we appreciate your ears, your opinions, uh, and we have some really good episodes coming to you in the next yeah. couple of months. Yeah. Really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, but. If you'd like to check us out, our website is ghoulishtendencies.com. All of our show notes, all of our references, all of our social medias are on there, mm-hmm. including Instagram, Facebook, all the things. The it's twits. all Ghoulish Tendencies podcast. Twits is Ghoulish Podcast. Ghoulish Podcast. And uh, if you would like to contribute, we have a Patreon. Um, thank you for all of our patrons. We really appreciate you as well. There should be a new bloops bloopers if you like to hear the (laughs) outtakes of what doesn't get put on these episodes check out our uh patreon how many of those bloopers are me reacting to you turning on the recording of the zoom call i don't know i haven't i mean you could do like a whole series of just kim's reactions to turning on the zoom call recording because that's true because it's true it's true and if you would like to give us a rating, we appreciate that on Apple Podcasts. Uh, there's also a place to leave a review. We also appreciate that, too. So thank you so much for listening. And stay, stay.